Black women started the National Association of Colored Women's Clubs in 1896. And the first president was Mary Church Terrell, who I just mentioned in terms of who was active in protesting the prison conditions of, of Black women. And it was really, it was an organization, I mean, <laughs> what did they not do? <laughs> These women fought for voting rights, for everything concerning Black women. Um, they fought against labor exploitation, and that's what my research really focuses on, on how they, they organized against labor exploitation. Um, they built schools um, for Black women and children and communities. They built employment assistance centers for Black communities. They had social clubs. They, they did a lot um, in terms of providing resources for Black communities that just weren't there after emancipation. Um, so they were in, engaged in what one club woman named Anna Julia Cooper calls nation building. <laughs> they were really involved in that. And they said, and, they, and in many ways, they argued that uh, once Black women's lives got better, then the entire Black community would rise. Because if we address the racial, the, the gender and class issues of, that Black women have to encounter, then Black men and Black children would benefit from that as well. That was Daniel Phillips Cunningham, Associate Professor of Women's and Gender Studies at Texas Women's University. That clip about the formation of the National Association of Colored Women's Club provides you a glimpse into our rich conversation about the interplay between racial, gender, and class dynamics and worker organizing. Previous to talking with Danielle, my understanding of these issues was too unnuanced as I erected a brick wall between the interest and agency of working-class Black women and the interest and agency of middle-class Black women. Danielle helped me to better recognize the complex interconnections at play. I think you will enjoy hearing about this and then pondering what this means for Black worker power building. But before we get to the episode, we taped it prior to the leak from the Supreme Court of their preliminary decision on the abortion case before it. While we'll talk more about this on the next episode, I do need to say that this decision, if it comes out close to what is being leaked, is disastrous. Beyond the obvious attack on a woman's ability to choose, with the resulting return to the horrific pre-row days where women's health were at risk as many chose to get unsafe abortions, this decision foreshadows an attack on all rights that are based upon the presumption there's a right to privacy. In addition, while the court disingenuously says that states should decide these matters, the GOP is ready to pass federal laws that will ban abortion nationwide. And finally, this effort to control women's bodies through a governmental edict is part of the larger authoritarian trend that attempts to narrow the scope of truly democratic participation in our society. As Frederick Douglass said, if there is no struggle, there is no progress speech, the limits of tyrants are prescribed by the endurance of those whom they oppress. We have no choice but to fight. Now let's get on to our conversation with Danielle Phillips Cunningham. Hey, folks, how you doing? This is Stephen Pitts, co-host of Black Word Talk, and I'm here with my co-host Sheree Davis. Sheree, how you doing? Good. How you doing? I'm doing good. Real purple today. Why are you wearing purple? Because <laughs> uh, I think yesterday is uh, when Prince passed away, the 19th, and okay. uh, for okay. some reason I just woke up and had to have yeah. my purple earrings, my purple socks, my purple dress, and. You know, bring a little Prince energy. I understand. You know, a lot of my friends are deep, deep, deep into Prince. For me, I was kind of not deep into stuff. So I was always more of a Michael person than a Prince person, to be honest. Mm. But when after Prince passed, I got into stuff. And my God, Prince right. is incredible. Just, oh, my God, he's incredible. I, I, I just love the that. story. I can't remember what um, their name was, but the... You know, Prince winning all of his masters and getting his um, 
his work, like ownership of his work back. They say it, there's a, a union organizer or there's someone out of labor who was able to negotiate and get it. I have to go and get the, the name of the person, but I was just like completely excited about the fact that labor comes through with the win for Prince, yeah. you know? There's some people out here in the Bay who who come out of labor, who kind of went to work for Prince a little bit, maybe in there, I, I don't know. So I'll just say, we'll find out later on. Um, but in a musical moment, um, I'm a big Luther man. Mm. Luther, Luther, Luther. And uh, my memory is that they, it was his, his birthday. And um, yeah, I'm Luther 24-7. Look, some of us um, are only here because of Luther. Let's just okay. be honest. <laughs> and, 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 and we'll let that go, okay? Um, <laughs> But in the background, um, I, I see our guest laughing as well. So I want to bring her into the conversation. So we have with us Danielle Phillips Cuttingham. And welcome to the Black Work Talk family, okay? You're now part of the family, okay? So welcome. So, so Danielle, you are professor of women's studies in, at Texas Women's University. That got it, got it correct? Yes, yes, that's correct. Um, the, the technical name is Texas Women's University, but I say Texas Women's University, like I'm you sorry, just sorry. said, because um, because of the diversity of people there. So I think that's so important, right? Um, to to emphasize women instead of woman. <laughs> so yes. I got to Texas back in 1974. So I may have an old school understanding of the, of the name and those sort of things. I, I, I think correctly. No, no, there there are a lot of people who still <laughs> refer to it t- intentionally as women's, but uh, but yeah, no, Texas women's in, in Denton, Texas. So we're about 40 miles outside of Dallas. Okay, okay, okay. And you've done a lot of great work on some histor- historical stuff in Black women work organizing. And, and kind of whole, that's the starting point for a lot of broader stuff. So I mean, I'm excited to talk to you about that today. But how do you and Sheree hook up? I didn't know you till like five minutes ago. So how do you and Sheree hook up? Hook up? <laughs> <laughs> uh, this is my favorite story. So I um, I was at the inauguration uh, for uh, the new president, Spellman, uh a while ago. Uh, and uh, Mary Schmidt Campbell was coming in as a new president. And um, professor, longtime professor Spellman, um, Mona Phillips, was uh, talking about Spellman's history and talked about the washerwomen's strike and basically said that the founding of Spellman's history is because there was a, a sense that the philanthropists wanted to civilize Black women and so therefore invested in an in, in, in educational project um, uh, in 1881, which just so happens to be when the washerwomen's strike happened. And uh, for me, it was just like a light bulb went off. And so... Um, I wanted to teach when the uh, when COVID happened. I said, well, this is an opportunity to do some virtual teaching. Let's see if we can get a labor class at Spelman. And so I reached out to Mona Phillips and said, hey, can can we teach a class together? And she said, no, you should talk to my daughter. And I was like, why would I talk to your daughter? You're the person who gave the speech and I want to teach a class with you. I know you. I've known you forever. And she was like, no, no, you should you should reach out to my daughter, really. And I'm thinking. Oh, okay, fine. And so then I reach out to Danielle, find out that this is where she was basically citing her daughter's research in this speech. I don't know if she gave you credit for it, but we, you know, we can go back and look at the tapes. But I, I reached out to Danielle and said, Hey, I, I want to talk to you about this thing. You know, the washerwomen strike. Apparently you're the expert. And from that point on, I feel like everything I asked Danielle to participate in, and trust me, it was a lot. It was like a class, a network, a launch, a talk, you name it. She said yes. And so we pretty much have been working together for about two, two years since the beginning of the pandemic, a little before that. Honestly, just off of the, you know, Spellman said yes to the class and Danielle said yes to being being on this crazy Cherie ride, which you know. <laughs> so <laughs> the whole way. But but yes, Steven, Cherie has it down packed. My mother put me to work. I think I learned some of my first lessons about labor from my mother because she does not mind putting me to work all the time. <laughs> 
And so, um, yeah, so that's how we connected. Um, Cherie and I are Spelman sisters. We're both alums of, of Spelman College. And, um, and I'll talk later about how much, um, Spelman has really influenced my work, um, and my interest in, in Black women's labor organizing, um, history. And so, um, so yeah, so the, the speech was about, um, black women's, uh, washerwomen's strikes, um, in Atlanta during 1881, which was when, um, Spellman was founded. Um, and so Spellman right now is in the process of rewriting that history so that the founding doesn't center these two missionary white women who founded Spellman, um, but also includes the resistance work that um, Black women were doing during that time, right? And so rethinking the, the quote unquote origin story of Spellman um, really opens up so many pathways for thinking about um, the students at Spelman even, right? <laughs> and not just seeing them as, um, as empty receptacles of, of what these white w missionary women were teaching them <laughs> or civilizing them, right? So these were, were Black women coming out of, of slavery with their own ideas about um, the world, um, about labor, and so many other things. Now, I hadn't heard the story before. It's fascinating in so many different dimensions. And right now, I want to just mention the idea that we have to have the history from below, like one way to talk about it, or call it social history. Um, and it's both because it's accurate, first of all, because it's always the starting point, but also it shapes how people see the world. You know, and and if people think that the AU complex, then the Atlanta University complex is designed to train the talent of the 10th, that fits in line with the idea of, you know, two white missionary women trying to uplift the Black race. If you get a sense of, of the origin story being struggle, a working class of Black women to change the world, that shifts how you see why the university is there, why the college is there. And also in, in my shift, how you see your, your your role in the world itself. So it's really a fascinating thing. But talk more about the strike though. God, I don't know much about it at all. Yeah, yeah. So um, during, and, and we know this history because of the groundbreaking um, research of historian Tara Hunter. Um, she wrote a, a classic book uh, that I suggest everyone read. Um, it's entitled um, To Joy My Freedom, Southern Black Women's Labors and Lives um, After the Civil War. And she uncovered evidence of Black washerwomen, not only in Atlanta, but as early as 1866 in Jackson, Mississippi, um, fighting for fair wages, right? Living wages. Um, and this is right after emancipation. And that's what's so fascinating about it, um, that Black women were inserting themselves into um, state and local politics around labor justice issues. Um, and this was at a time when they could not vote um, because they were Black, because they were women. Um, during this Reconstruction period, um, only Black men could vote. But of course, Reconstruction was cut short. So there was a time period um, when they couldn't when Reconstruction ended, um, um, vote and run for political office. But um, uh, Black washerwomen were, were saying, we deserve living wages, we deserve um, better living conditions. And this was pretty radical for the time because after slavery ended, um, most Black women could not find employment outside of domestic service and sharecropping. Because a lot of the ex-Confederate soldiers took over um, the the government, especially, you know, in the South. Um, they still owned the land in the South. And so there were a lot of discriminatory hiring practices. Um, Black women, no matter how much formal education they received and completed, you know, they still had trouble finding employment outside of domestic service and sharecropping. But these women were, were writing letters to um, local mayors and saying, we deserve 
um, living wages now. And then in 1877, um, Tara Hunter talks about washerwomen in Galveston, Texas, who were demanding living wages as well and who were protesting um, commercial laundries that were coming into the city. Um, and these commercial laundries would have had, you know, a detrimental impact on their clientele and on their wages because these commercial laundries, um, you know, advertise their services as we can wash faster and for cheaper prices, right? And then there was a similar situation in Atlanta in 1881, um, where there were commercial laundries coming into Atlanta and washerwomen, um, you know, revolted. They, they led strikes. And what started as initially a group of 20 women, a few black men as well, um, grew into this 3,000 person strike. <laughs> so there were several people, thousands of people, um, who said, we will not wash anymore until you, um, pay us a living wage. And they demanded that of the mayor. It, it was a huge thing. Yeah. But there's also, what was the timing that it went from this small number to thousands? What was, how much time are we talking about? Yeah, we're talking about less than, that's a good point, Cherie. We're talking about less than a year. We're talking about months, you know, that it grew into this 3,000 person membership and they formed um, the Washing Society. And that's also what's so fascinating about it because during this time, um, labor organizations had excluded um, the the concerns and the labor injustices that were impacting Black women. Um, so the washerwomen said, oh, well, we'll form our own organization. We'll form our own trade society. And that's what they did. And it was, it was quite impressive um, that they uh, recruited people um, from all parts of the city. Um, a few white women who are believed to be Irish immigrant women um, joined the protests as well. And um, they were serious. As I, as I described them, they were gangster. If anyone crossed the picket line, <laughs> they threatened uh, even black women who crossed the picket line. And, and you know, they, they engaged in some physical... <laughs> <laughs> encouragement for you to get back right in line with the trade organization and stand on uh, stand against the corporations. And they also um, fronted out um, uh, black male politicians who um, did not push for them, you know, in city council meetings who were not representing um, their interests. So this was just so when the, these two missionaries came to, to establish um, Spelman College, that the city was um, in an uproar at that time. Also during this time, the, the Cotton Exposition um, was coming to Atlanta. So the washerwomen planned this strike strategically around that exposition when people were coming from all over the world to see the new South and, oh, the South is wonderful now, you know, because um, slavery has ended, but we still have, um, but Black people are still subordinate, right? <laughs> They're still our servants. They still pick cotton. And so it was this this reassertion, the, the exposition was this reassertion of white supremacy, really, and, and white capitalism in many ways. And um, the washerwomen said, not on our watches. So um, they really were successful because local um, uh, politicians were scared about how much of a disruption the strikes could cause. And they were able to um, prevent um, laundries, commercial laundries from really taking root in Atlanta for the next 40 years. Um, so it was one of the, the earliest and, and most successful Black women's strikes. God, there's, there's so much there, Danielle. I mean, I kept saying, boom, nothing, this, talk, this, talk about this. Um, now, seriously, it's a lot of stuff that's so important in so many different ways. Um, random responses from me, nothing in order of importance or what you said, just you talked about the commercial laundries coming in, like technology, they're fighting technology. 
and 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 the, and the whole question of the battle over who controls technology is so important. And I didn't I didn't know the story first of all. And hearing the people battle over that kind of technology and in, insertion in, in, in is really important to hear. And also, what it does in my mind is it has us always remember the importance of grinding things historically. Because sometimes we talk about things as if they are unique to my time period, but in particular, or in, in something new. And so now it may not be new, y'all. And so we have better technology today. It would be the robots in Amazon warehouses, be it the containers and the docks back in the 50s and 60s. So that's examples of technology there. So that's one important thing. That's a fascinating story here. A question I had, because you mentioned a former organization, what was some of the the life past the strike itself. So 1882, 83, and so forth. Well, tell me a bit about that reality. Yeah, yeah, that's that's a wonderful question because that leads into my research area, um, which is um, after the strikes, because, you know, I, I wondered, okay, this is wonderful. Um, when I first read Tara Hunter's book um, years ago, I said, wow, this is great. And then there's this this period, right, when um, Black women aren't really integrated into labor organizations until like the 1960s, 1970s, really, 1970s. And, you know, the, the question that constantly guides my research is, well, what were Black women doing before then, in between then? So in between those strikes and then like the 1970s, um, because, you know, I just assumed, of course, that Black women weren't sitting by on the sidelines, right? Just, <laughs> just taking labor exploitation and not saying anything about it and not organizing. So during this period, especially towards the end of the late 19th century and the early 20th centuries, I look at how Black women engaged in labor resistance outside of labor unions and labor organizations. Um, because those are the spaces where you can really um, capture and look at um, the resistance that often goes unnoticed. Um, and so this also connects to, to Spellman and Spellman's influence on me in terms of looking at unsuspecting places uh, where this rich history emerges. Um, and so that's also what led me to looking at um, Black club women and how they engaged in labor resistance. And, and to capture this history, you know, in many ways, I, I argue that we have to think about labor resistance expansively. So not only in terms of strikes, but also um, setting up employment assistance um, programs for Black women who are migrating from the South to the North, um, making sure that um, trying to do as much as they could to make sure that they had safe employment um, and they didn't become a part of um, sex trafficking um, schemes, right, in terms of that migration period, the Great Migration. Um, setting up daycare centers um, and kindergarten um, um, schools for Black women workers and their children um, because these services weren't readily available and, and plentiful, especially in the South, um, <laughs> where the state, um, local and federal governments were not going to invest, right, uh, and provide resources for Black families. So they... So I'm looking at, so my research focuses on the multiple ways in which they resisted labor exploitation. Can I jump in, Stephen? I wanted to ask a question too. Uh, you know, uh, like I said, Danielle and I had the opportunity to co-teach a class and uh, I basically had my mind blown pretty much every week. Uh, but there was, there are a couple of different pieces um, that I would love to hear you talk about. One being um, the connection to domestic workers and the carceral um, system um, and, 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 you know, information or what we've learned about that kind of organizing, um, as well as uh, the, the kinds of supports that also included housing or community focused in addition to workplace focused um, work. So I was just wondering if you could speak on that a little bit too. Yeah, yeah, that's a great question because, 
you know, Black women have a long and a tradition, a rich tradition of engaging in what I call comprehensive labor resistance. <laughs> so it was about the actual workplace and challenging um, exploitation in the actual workplace, but also um, creating services and resources for Black women workers that impacted their lives even outside of the formal, you know, kind of workplace. And so um, uh, club women such as Mary Church Terrell um, were very active in, in challenging um, the carceral system because during the Jim Crow era, um, there was what was called the Black Codes. Um, and when, um, so it was a series of policies and laws that were passed in the South in which Black people could be arrested for, um, for minute criminal offenses, if criminal offenses at all. They could just be arrested at the drop of a dime. Um, uh, domestic workers were often um, arrested if they were accused of talking back to their employers. So you see during this time, this um, the, this mass incarceration in many ways of, of Black women, um, Black men as well, um, but Black women too. And so, uh, women, Black women during this time were, were going actually to the prisons and recording and documenting, um, the living and working conditions of, um, Black women inmates. Um, I want to stress that most, many of the inmates were young. Um, some teenagers, all the way to very elderly Black women living in um, inhumane conditions and arrested for and imprisoned for um, some things that were even beyond their control. Um, Sarah Haley talks about in her book, No Mercy Here, um, about how one Black woman was um, arrested for um, the death of her newborn child um, but her, her child died because she did not have access to proper medical care and health care. And she was accused of killing her own, her own child. And so, um, so black women, uh, documented this. They took these reports, not only Mary Church Terrell, but Selena Sloan Butler, an alumna of Spelman College too. I have to emphasize that. Uh, <laughs> but she, she, um, and her husband was actually instrumental too, because women weren't allowed in the courtrooms. Her husband would go to, um, the courtroom to, to document how black women were discriminated against, even within the courtroom itself, you know, the proceedings that led to their imprisonment. And they took these reports, they, they, they brought these, uh, reports to national attention, um, um, uh, documenting them, expressing them, you know, reading them at um, national conferences and taking them to state lawmakers. And in Georgia, um, they got rid of the convict leasing system. It took decades, but they got rid of it because of the activism of Black women during this time. A quick question, just to make sure I'm clear um, on the timeline. And um, by extension, to make sure the audience, they may not be confused, I'm confused. Um, so when you talk about the activity of the club women, one, could you define the club women, who they were? I mean, what does it mean? And, and second, um, that the time period, could we start talking about kind of the aftermath of the 1881 washerwoman strike? And I sense that we went beyond that quickly. I want to make sure I'm clear the timeline here on activities. Sure, sure. So um, by club women, I mean, um, OK, so black women started the National Association of Colored Women's Clubs in 1896. And the first president was Mary Church Terrell, who I just mentioned in terms of who was active in protesting the prison conditions of, of black women. And it was really, it was an organization. I mean, <laughs> what did they not do? 
these women fought for voting rights, for everything concerning Black women. Um, they fought against labor exploitation. And that's what my research really focuses on, on how they, they organized against labor exploitation. Um, they built schools. Um, for Black women and children and communities. They built employment assistance centers for Black communities. They had social clubs. They they did a lot um, in terms of providing resources for Black communities that just weren't there after emancipation. Um, so they were in, engaged in what one club woman named Anna Julia Cooper calls nation building. <laughs> they were really involved in that. And they said, and, they, and in many ways, they argued that uh, once Black women's lives got better, then the entire Black community would rise. Because if we address the racial, the, the gender and class issues of, that Black women have to encounter, then Black men and Black children would benefit from that as well. Because the Black women's experiences and lives are at the intersections of all of these multiple inequalities and experiences of discrimination. So if we um, address the racial class and gender inequalities, then that benefits everyone. Um, so they had a, a model that, um, that uh, said lifting as we climb. So that's what they believed. And this was an extensive organization. Um, there were chapters in every single state <laughs> and just about every uh, single city and rural town of the United States. So sometimes when I hear some people say or uh, this, this myth that, oh, Black people don't organize. We don't organize like other people. Hmm. Uh, <laughs> This was um, this was really a, 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 an extensive um, form of organizing, all the way from you know New York to Georgia, Florida, as far west as Colorado and California. Um, and so this organization persisted throughout the the early twentieth century as well. So that's the time period that I'm referring to. So after 1881 into the 1930s and 40s. This is so fascinating. I mean, I always joke to people that um, I love this podcast. I meet new friends. I learn the hell out of shit too, by the way. This is really great. And so thanks for this. I mean, you talked, I mentioned a lot of things I thought about. You first talked about the strike back in 1881. So when you mentioned that, um, I think I got this right. There were some black men are caught on city council in Atlanta who are not that supportive of the strike. It'd be fascinating to hear your take. Teasing out maybe the wrong term, but when I hear that story, I hear two linked forms of hierarchies, one of gender, one of class. And it'd be fascinating to, to, to untie that. I, I say it be, because um, when I was reading a bit on the migration, my folks from Alabama, so they got to, my, my daddy got to Chicago in the first migration, and my mom, second migration, right? I read a lot about Chicago migrations. And hear a lot about the role of the Chicago, Chicago Urban League in trying to assist migrants. And sometimes my re, my, what I'm reading, not my interpretation, what I'm reading, is that there was a bit of paternalism involved based on class. And 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 so it's a fascinating question of how the nature of racial capitalism puts a lot of folks in the same boat. And so when you help wash women, you help out everybody. So kind of a class battle rises all boats. But to the extent that a certain class leads those struggles they kind of mediate the nature of those struggles. And it's just fascinating to, to get a sense of that. So I, I would love to hear your, your take on how the class differences amongst the, the Black women who were active impacted, if at all. I may be simply, yo, Stephen, yes, but like minuscule, or yo, Stephen, yes, is major. I have no idea. But kind of talk a bit about the whole question of how class impacted that, that level of Black women's activism? Yeah, that's that's a great question. That's a, And actually, this is 
a conversation that's happening in academia right now because. But I want the answer though right now. I want the answer. <laughs> right, right. No, I know. I know. I know. I know you want the answer. <laughs> But yeah, I mean, I think the respectability politics piece is a it's just a tension and a thread that runs through all of it, this. It, it is. It is. And it's something that people are discussing now because you, what I see is that a younger generation of scholars. Right. I'm thinking around 40s and 30s. We are returning to this history <laughs> and we're saying, hey, you know, yes. Um, the club women were engaged um, in respectability politics in some ways, but less, but it's more complicated than that, right? Um, because they were advancing some pretty radical arguments for the time, you know, and, and before this, Black club women were often um, portrayed as um, um, people who looked down right upon working class black women and we know better than you and we are going to civilize you. So almost acting like those white missionaries who we talked about earlier that um, I, I am going to um, wipe the dust off of you, right? In terms of even how the Urban League approached, um, sometimes approached migrants. And what we have now is, is people returning to their history and saying, Wow, they did some some radical things. Um, uh, Brittany Cooper, for example, talks about in her book Beyond Respectability um, Politics that she that the the National Association of Colored Women's Clubs was a school of social thought. That's huge. That's huge to say that um, because it takes seriously the intellectual labors that came out of. Um, club women's organizing. Um, it takes seriously those seeds of intersectionality. So many of the theories we talk about now, um, that have become mainstream, <laughs> but these women really set the foundation for intersectionality and what we know now is critical race theory. They laid that foundation. And, you know, I argue that you know, the NACWC, the National Association of Colored Women's Clubs was also also operated as like a labor organization during that time when no other major labor union was going to represent black women's interests. Um, they just outright refused to do it. So they had to organize within these clubs. Um, I think that it's important to also look at churches and how churches engaged in labor resistance during this time. Um, right now, I'm writing a, a labor history of Nanny Helen Burroughs, um, who was um, a civil rights activist, an educator based in Washington, D.C. And she started the National Training School for um, Women and Girls in 1909. And that was to um, help improve the working and living conditions of Black women and girls. And in, in 1920, she started the National Association of Wage Earners, which was the largest Black women's labor organization of the 20th century, of the early 20th century. And she started their organization because she tried to organize with the Women's Trade Union League, and they told her, you know, no, we don't have time to, uh, race makes things too complicated. We, we can't, we don't have time to address racial and class and gender inequalities. <laughs> and so Burroughs took matters into her own hands with her, her colleagues, her sister comrades in the NACWC, and they launched um, the National Association of Wage Earners. There were, um, they were able to uh, recruit thousands of members, mostly domestic workers. Their, their main agenda was to improve the working conditions of domestic workers. 
And um, there were thousands of members in D.C. There were chapters in North Carolina. Um, I just found out that there was a chapter in Galveston, Texas. And I found that out through W.E.B. Du Bois's um, uh, newsletter. Um, but and then there were chapters in New York City, in Virginia, um, Connecticut. And that she was able to set up those organizations with other club women and domestic workers. So even getting back to your, your question, um, Stephen, I think these histories push us to complicate how we think about class because there were many domestic workers who were members of club women's organizations. <laughs> um, there were domestic workers who were officers in the National Association of Colored Women's Clubs. So it, it, it really um, pushes us to think in more complex ways about class and this stark division between club women and, um, and for example, domestic workers. This is so good, Danielle. The books come out tomorrow, you said? <laughs> your, your research books. I'm working on it. I'm working on it. I thought I heard that. Not, let's let's not pretend like there's not already a book out there, you know, put, put, putting their hands on race. If I could put my hands on that book in this house today, I couldn't find it to save my life. I feel like it's usually right there when I wake up, but I highly, highly recommend that folks get the book that's already out there. What uh, it? It's the Tara Hunter book, another book you're talking about? No, Danielle's book, Putting Their Hands on Race, which is also an award winning book <laughs> and so and so so i i can get daniel's book today today but tomorrow the new but tomorrow the new book's coming out the right okay but this is this is really fascinating god it's so fast i mean i keep wanting to interrupt you for a second wait a second how about this 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 sort of thing because i was going to ask the question about membership you know because one thing to speak for versus you know, this is us that's that's one important thing here is really fascinating another thing um I want to get back to the idea of complicating class, by the way, but a random thought from left field, so feel free to say, Stephen, keep on, keep on moving, right? But when I heard you talk about this, I was, I, in my mind, I was hearing, well, I was translating, okay, put it that way, that this is in some ways similar to the larger settlement house movement going on at the time period. Um, clearly, it's not the same because of the you know, reasons we know things, things aren't the same, right? But it's similar. And my understanding of that larger settlement movement stuff, there are a lot of socialists involved. And so Jane Adams was a socialist. Um, we'd be think, thinking about some of the, the white folks who were involved in, in 1909 founding the NAACP. They were socialists, right? Du Bois was a socialist. And so my question then are, if you look at the club woman stuff, club woman socialism, give me, give me a story. Come on. <laughs> I'm, I'm, it's a serious, serious question, though. If in if in the the, the if in another world you saw some interface there, right? Uh -huh. um, um, in this world, is there some interface as well? Absolutely, absolutely. So, um, just giving you a, a specific story, uh, and I just want to step back and say, just like Du Bois. Um, uh, black women, black um, Nanny Helen Burroughs, Mary Church Terrell, all these women had a global analysis of capital, you know. And so in the book that um, in my book, which Cherie mentioned earlier, thank you. Um, you know, I talk about how Anna Julia Cooper, um, who was a club woman, but had this and, and who wrote what is considered a classic now, a voice from the South by a black woman of the South. And she explains in details her global analysis of labor and capitalism. And what's so fascinating about, I think, about returning to these primary sources but through the lens of labor, looking at labor, is you see how these women documented labor injustices and quantified labor inequalities during a time where there really no, were no studies that quantified the exploitation. <laughs> so, you know, in one part of A Voice from the South, she says, you can, there, there's so many numbers about how black um, workers are illiterate. They're this, they're that. 
but then there no quant there's no quantitative data that really emphasizes how much their labor upholds global capitalism. Black labor is really at the foundation of that. And so she's doing all of the document, what we would consider on the ground research. She's doing that even during that time to show the significance of our labor. And in many ways, you know, down the line, she gets even more socialist, <laughs> you know, in terms of um, advocating for um, laws to protect domestic workers um, against labor abuses. Um, Nanny Helen Burroughs actually was featured and wrote for um, socialist newspapers in the U.S. Um, she started a co-op at her school um, when um, especially Black people were left out of New Deal era legislation. Um, and so she had this firm belief that um, really only Black people could really represent Black workers' interests. And so you, um, she was very much a proponent of doing that grassroots organizing to get those resources off the ground. This co-op had a clinic at a time where there weren't a lot of, um, where there weren't plentiful health care um, services for Black people in D.C. Um, she had a farm where there weren't many um, healthy food options right in D.C. during the early 20th century. Um, she had a, a, a furniture factory so, <laughs> um, so that Black people could um, furnish, uh, purchase furniture without the prices being inflated. Um, because even in some white-owned stores in D.C., um, the white store owners would inflate the prices uh, when black customers came into their stores to buy furniture. Um, so surprising. So surprising. Right, so surprising. <laughs> I, I'm so shocked. Right, right, right. So here, you know, this is still continuing. It, it happened back then. And they're, they're, right. it's amazing how they're doing all of this attacking, you know, just challenging all these layers of inequality on the day-to-day -day level of, of people's lives. So they, they, you know, especially Nanny Helen Burroughs, Stephen, I think um, really agreed with some socialist arguments, which is why you find some of her op-eds in socialist newspapers in the U.S. And I just want to add- So, that, so that, that's perfect. I Oh, no, because I, I I was going to segue from your op-eds. Mm -hmm. I just want to say one more thing. Uh, what's also fascinating. But quick question, quick question, though. Are you paying Sheree to be a publicist, by the way? Are you, I don't make sure because you're in the page. Make sure I'm, you got my cash app. Stephen, don't give her any ideas. Wanna, I, I will have an invoice at the end of this conversation. So no. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, we, we, we don't want to unpaid labor going through here now. There's unpaid labor going on, okay? But I'm sorry, go, go on now. I, I just apologize. wanted to say this because I'm getting excited by both of your questions. Um, in terms of Du Bois, you mentioned Du Bois, Stephen. And so um, Du Bois, I'm finding, you know, as I'm going through all of the archival materials, that he could be very supportive of, of black women during that time. And also black women organized because they thought he was too arrogant to lead a global socialist movement. So that's how Burroughs started her International Council of the Women of Darker Races, which was really to gather and to organize women around, you know, across the African diaspora to address these disparities. Because in many ways, she argued in the women who organized with her, that these racial, these intersectional disparities exist on a global level. And, and Du Bois wanted her to be a part of his Pan-African um, Congress um, movement, but she said, he's too arrogant to lead such an important <laughs> global organization, so I will make sure women are at the center. So I just wanted to add that. <laughs> Uh, so I, I just wanted to, because you mentioned um, um, uh, Nanny, Nanny Helen Burroughs op-eds, and I did want to actually ask questions because there's a couple of really important op-eds that you wrote uh, over the last couple of years during the pandemic. 
And the reason why I want to ask about that is because one of the things that you are doing is moving seamlessly between like political action, between resistance around employers, right? You're move, you're moving kind of smoothly back and forth. Um, and sometimes people identify it as different arenas, but we know in many ways that they, that, 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 you know, you got to come at both, both, both of these arenas to be able to address the issues, particularly as it relates to black women at work. Can you talk a little bit about both the work that you were looking at in Georgia and their recent um, elections, um, but also a little bit about the, um, I was thinking earlier when we talked about the way that the um, these organizations, these national organizations activated to respond to policies that were basically starving folks. So we talk about Fannie Lou Hamer, but we don't necessarily talk about what was happening where um, when, you know, I, I can't remember specifically the policy, but um, there was a policy to, to for, for farmers to stop growing um, in the South. And it led to really the starvation of black workers um, who were farmers at the time. And so there's there there's a piece around like how these organizations activated to be able to address these kinds of issues. But also it's still a political piece around like knowing that there's deep history um, in some of the victories and the uh, uh, and the elections that we're seeing now that this doesn't just come from. Nowhere. Oh, yes, yes, exactly. Exactly. Um, I was. um really interested in writing an op-ed connecting um, the phenomenal organizing um, around Stacey Abrams' campaign for governor of Georgia and how it revealed really the the long history of Black women's organizing um, in Atlanta. (laughs) And, And there's such a rich history there that um, Stacey Abrams campaign drew from, right? These are years and it, it, and I, and I think especially, you know, as you alluded to as well, Cherie, in this world where, um, I'm thinking about media, right? And, and, and sound bites and how, um, the constant stream of, um, 24 hour media and how, because of that 24 hour stream, sometimes the accomplishments or what seems really extraordinary, um, seems like an isolated event. <laughs> like, oh, this is wonderful. And, um, and sometimes that discussion just leaves instantly, right? Without looking at how it came to be. And so this op-ed that I wrote um, for the Washington Post came out maybe a couple of weeks before um, the special election results came out when Ossoff and John Ossoff and uh, Warnock, Raphael Norwa, uh, Warnock were, were um, running. And it was just such an, an exciting time, you know, to think about um, the results that this election could yield. And we know that Stacey Abrams and Black women were organizing and were essential to, you know, both campaigns and, and state organizing. Um, but they they drew from this long history of um, Selena Sloan Butler, who I mentioned earlier, and domestic worker organizing. Atlanta has such a rich history of domestic workers. And and I'm not just saying that because I'm from Atlanta. I am a little biased, but (laughs) the evidence is there from the the washerwomen strikes all the way down to Dorothy Bolden, um, who um, established the Domestic Workers Union of America um, in the 1960s and 70s. And and Sheree and I... um, talked about that in our class. And it was really, so domestic workers in Atlanta have always been inserting themselves into the local politics. And finally, we got to see how um, that really materialized (laughs) in some really um, unprecedented ways during that special election. So in that op-ed, I predicted that this would happen, that Warnock and Ossoff would win, and it was because of the black women, of black women's organizing, and and the and the 
infrastructure that Stacey Abrams um, established in Georgia, which built upon um, the women who came before her. So we're, we're, we're seeing that and it takes decades and it takes years. I also wanted to, to write that op-ed because teaching labor history to students, sometimes um, they get discouraged really quickly and they think, okay, I've organized, people have organized, nothing has changed. <laughs> so, you know, I, I also had that going on in the back of my mind, which was, you know, this takes time. Um, but persistence is is really key. Um, and so that was so I was thinking about conversations I've had with students in the classroom as well as to why um, it's important to, to think about the history that informs um, some of the exciting things we're seeing today. Which is fascinating, Danielle, this whole question of who writes history and who gets to tell the lessons from history and implications. Any thoughts on that? on who gets to write history and implications in that? Yeah, I I mean, and I think because there's so much controversy now and, and um, political unrest about critical race theory, right, in the classroom. <laughs> um, and, and I'm really seeing the impact of that, especially in Texas. But as we know, that's happening all across the country. Um, and it really is a, a banning of Black history. That's really what it is. And so when these stories aren't told um, and... I mean, it, it really has a detrimental impact on the entire country, um, on students, on our sense of history, um, on, a, on our sense of where to go from here, because there's so much that we can learn um, from history, you know, in terms of, of where to move forward. And, and progress is slow. Progress is so slow. So the women we were talking about, you know, washerwomen to the club women had been um, arguing for over a century that, you know, we should be looking at and addressing intersecting racial class and gender inequalities. And it's just now where the idea of intersectionality is really um, being taken up you know, in terms of mainstream um, um, venues and, and areas. Um, so what I, what I like about what I'm seeing now is even more policy briefs um, and blogs about um, the necessity of having an intersectional approach to labor policy making and that we cannot afford um, to not have an intersectional analysis, right? But that comes out of this history and Black women um, documenting Black women's labor organizing history. So there, there's a lot to learn, especially in terms of, of policymaking. And I'm, I'm focusing on that because of um, COVID-19, which really brought labor issues to the forefront in ways that I don't think this country has talked about in decades. Um, and, and, and I see, and, and so the, the history of Black women's organizing, people are turning to that history, um, to think about pathways forward. And we would not have those histories if it not, were not for, um, Black women, historians, sociologists, um, women's and gender studies scholars, um, you know, feminist scholars across disciplines documenting um, this history. That's also a way to segue to my closing questions. Um, you mentioned kind of the pathway forward. What's your vision of Black freedom? Your vision, your definition? Black freedom. Uh-huh. Yeah. Black freedom to me is... Black freedom will be realized when we are fully recognized and treated as fully citizen in this country. 
And that runs across, I think, social, political, and economic institutions. Um, when um, racial, class, and gender inequalities are dismantled, all the way from, you know, not having to hold our collective breath every time a Black person is killed and we're trying to, and we're, you know, I'm thinking about, for example, um, um, the George Floyd um, verdict and how we were all holding our collective breath, looking at television, wondering how is this verdict going to come out? Um, to um, uh, not having to worry about workplace discrimination, to having our labors acknowledged. So Black freedom to me is very expansive. Um, I hope I get to see it in my lifetime, but, <laughs> but I think it's something that we should all push for, um, even if we don't. And um, so that's what I think about us being fully recognized and treated as fully citizen in, in healthcare, in um, the workplace, um, in the justice system, and in everyday interactions. Sounds cool. Um, we started talking about, about Prince and, and Luther, but what sort of music drives you, Danielle? You feel down with down what like, you put on? I like that question because I actually can't work without music. I love music. It, it, it feeds the soul. Um, I like everything from hip hop, R&B to um, actually bluegrass music and country music. So I can I can get down with Bone Thugs and Harmony <laughs> because I, I grew up between families in Atlanta, Georgia and Detroit, Michigan. And so Bone Thugs reminds me of um, the harmonious sound that came out of the Motown era. <laughs> um, and so that makes me feel like at, at home to um, Jill Scott and, and Lettucey. I integrate um, music into my labor classes at, at Texas Women's University. I, I teach Bessie Smith's um, blues song, Washerwomen's Blues, to talk about the history of, of Black women and, and domestic service. Um, I actually teach a song, Jill Scott's song, which came out, I think about a little over 10 years ago, it's called On Petition. And it didn't get a lot of airplay, but it's a protest song. It really is a protest song. Um, and, and she's talking about these policies and, um, that detrimentally impact, um, um, black communities. She talks about clean air, our right to have clean air, getting back to your earlier question about freedom, um, <laughs> having an environment that we can live in. Um, all the way to, I like Bob Dylan's song, Maggie's Farm, which is about labor exploitation. And um, I like country music. I like Charlie Pride because my my grandparents in Chattanooga, Tennessee, loved country music, and um, it's good storytelling. So I, I go across the board. <laughs> so when you talk, talk about your freedom soundtrack, be very very broad, very very expansive. Sounds good. What books are you reading right now? <laughs> I am reading lots of books right now. Um, one book is The Managed Heart. I'm looking at my desk right now with all these books on it um, by Arlie Rus Russell Hoschild. Um, because I'm working on a, a book chapter about the emotional labor of Black women's labor organizing and what that entailed, especially during the, the early 20th century. And I'm also reading Fugitive Pedagogy by Jarvis Givens. Um, the full title is Fugitive Pedagogy, Carter G. Woodson and the Art of Black Teaching. Um, and so as I'm working on this book about Burroughs, I'm, I'm interested in, in some of the latest work that's coming out now, um, such as this book that talks about how um, the particular and distinct pedagogy that Black educators um, developed 
um, to address systemic inequalities during the early 20th century. Um, Burroughs was a, a close friend of Carter G. Woodson and um, like Carter G., she required that all of her students pass a, pass a Black history oral and written exam before graduating from her school. Um, so I'm really interested in, in putting her philosophies in conversation with um, all of the, the wonderful Black educators during that time who were, who were also addressing labor issues. Sounds cool. Daniel, it's been great meeting you. Um, great conversations. I'm so glad that, that you came on board. Well, thank you for having me. I really enjoyed this conversation, Dr. Davis and Dr. Pitts. Um, thank you so much. This was great. You'll be well, okay? You take care of yourself. Sure, you'd be good to go. Bye-bye. All right. Bye, y'all. Thank you. I love talking with Danielle. Two of my key takeaways. First, there's a need to have a more nuanced take on what has been commonly derided as respectability politics. Too often that phrase has been wielded as a hammer against any stance, set of strategies and tactics, and people who can be labeled as being, quote, not down with the people. Ignoring the vagueness of the phrase, the people, the weaponization of the term respectability politics cuts against our need to understand the concrete ways class and gender differences within the Black community manifest and understand the circumstances whereby non-working class men and women can be stalwarts fighting for Black working class power. Second key takeaway, the battle against technology is not a recent phenomenon. Battling against the efforts of 21st century Robert barons such as Musk, Bezos, Gates, and Zuckerberg, as they attempt to remake the world in order to maximize their control and profits. The black washwomen of the late 1800s fought off the advance of the commercial laundries in Atlanta for several decades. The central issue, what is almost always a central issue, is how to gain sufficient power and leverage to win these battles. As the freedom fighters in Mozambique said during their victorious war against Portuguese colonialism, Aluta Continua. Thanks for joining me this week on Black Work Talk. Please check out our co-sponsor, Convergence's website or his Facebook page. And pick up the new Convergence book, Power Concedes Nothing, How Grassroots Organizing Wins Elections, a collection of essays and interviews about the on-the-ground efforts that mobilized voters in 2020 across the United States. I hope this podcast can grow to become part of the network of our movement for change. While we need your help as we build the Black Work Talk community, I hope that you will subscribe to the podcast wherever you find your podcast and go to Patreon to become a sustainer. And beyond the financial support, I would love to hear from you. What do you think about the show? Any suggestions for future guests or future topics to explore? Please let me know. Reach out to me at steven at blackworktalk.com and I promise to get back to you. Until next time, Stay safe and be well.